Let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning uh, with grateful hearts because you are the God who has created us, who has saved and redeemed us, and who loves us. You provide for us. You have provided, even this morning, um, life and breath and all things, and you have given us this opportunity uh, to worship you and to hear your word uh, that we may have life and joy and that we may know how to live our lives. And we pray that even now as we study your word that uh, you would give us grace uh, to live this out for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, it is uh, a privilege to be with you. Uh, I'm, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here and I bring you greetings from uh, Jefferson Park Baptist Church in Charlottesville. Uh, we do pray for you regularly and uh, I, I trust many of you pray for us as well. So thank you for that, and uh, we praise God for uh, your fellowship in the gospel. Um, <clears throat> as I considered what uh, to uh, preach on this morning, um, I, I was struck, this was just a week ago, I've been teaching a Sunday school class through the book of Galatians, and um, there's just a, a particular verse toward the end of the book that, that stood out to me, uh, not because it was something that was difficult to understand. In fact, it's, it's a very simple, basic, but foundational thing that I need to be reminded of. Uh, and and I, I pray will uh, stir you up and, and remind you of um, just the, the basic substance of what we are called to uh, as followers of Jesus Christ. So turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Galatians chapter 6. And we're going to look at verse 10. Um, and as you're turning there, um, I want to share with you a quote that I, I came across recently uh, from Mahatma Gandhi. And Gandhi said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And as you hear that, you know, I, I wonder what you think? How do you respond to that? Uh, certainly, it is a sentiment that is not uncommon. Uh, it, we, we said it in many ways. I, I remember even in college sharing my faith with a friend of mine, and, and he responded along the lines of, well, well, Jesus is this great moral teacher. I believe that, but I, I don't really want anything to do with um, Jesus as God or with Christianity itself. Um, and, and, you know, I think we can respond to this sentiment of sort of admiration for Jesus, but uh, dislike of Christians in a number of ways. Um, you know, maybe we, you could disagree. You know, we could think, well, you know, real Christians actually are like Christ. Um, or maybe you could think, you know, well, there's a real shame that there's so many um, unlike Christians. And it's a shame that there's so much hypocrisy among us and how we fall short. Um, or, or maybe you respond by thinking, you know, Gandhi has really misunderstood Jesus uh, because you really can't like Jesus uh, without also bowing to him as Lord and God. Uh, and, and so there, there's a lot of things that, that we may think about, but, but the, the one thing that stands out that I think we can readily agree with uh, is that there is at least some sense in which many people who ultimately reject 
Jesus, still admire him. Uh, and, And that's because Jesus unquestionably lived a life marked by compassion, love, and good deeds. There's just no question. We, we, we read about his life in the Gospels. We see him staying up late at night, um, helping people lined up, desperate to be healed. Um, we, we, we see him having compassion on the multitudes, wanting to feed them, even then multiplying loaves of bread uh, to provide for them. Uh, we see him you know, seeing a, a, a grieving widow with her only son dead. And he sees the funeral procession and he has compassion and moved. He goes and he stops and the, the whole procession and then he raises uh, the son to life. Uh, we, we see Jesus, you know, welcoming outcasts. Even, even guys like Zacchaeus, right? Or the, the lepers, you know, people who were unclean, who were untouchable. And Jesus goes and touches and heals them. Uh, you know, above all, we see Jesus practicing what he preached. And, and in light of this, uh, Peter can say to Cornelius' household in Acts 10, when he goes to tell them about Jesus, I mean, he says, you yourselves already know that there was this Jesus of Nazareth who went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Uh, and, and so obviously, we as followers of Jesus are called to Christ-likeness. We're we're called to imitate Him. Uh, Not only to believe in Him, to trust Him for our salvation, but to strive to follow Him in doing good. The the world will always oppose our message. People will always see our evangelism, our discipleship, and that will be sort of weird and by some interpreted as even dangerous. Um, But at the same time, uh, let's strive to live the kind of lives that make it near impossible for people not to admit, you know, those Christians really love people. Uh, Their lives are just evidently marked by good deeds. And as much as I may not like what they stand for, I have to acknowledge that there is something profoundly attractive about the way that they live their lives. And so in in light of that, uh, I'd like to direct our attention to Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, and just give careful meditation and attention to that this morning. So Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity." Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so what I'd like to do this morning is consider the what, the why, the when, and the who of Galatians chapter 6. So what exactly is meant by doing good? Why should we do good? When? Or on what occasion should we do good? And who or to whom should we do good for or to? Uh, So let's begin with the what. Uh, The the one thing that is clearly 
commanded here, the essence of the command is do good. Uh, now, some have taken that as perhaps an allusion, uh, particularly in some way to almsgiving, you know, benevolence, giving in that sense. But, but virtually everyone would agree, however much you think that may be in view, that this is a comprehensive command, an exhortation to, to do good. Right? There's, there's no mystery in what is meant. It is to do good to others physically, spiritually, relationally, emotionally, whatever kind of need they have. Do them good. Rise to meet that need as you're able. Right? So if your neighbor is disabled, right, you could mow the grass for them. If, if, if a church member is sick, you could visit them in the hospital or, or bring a meal to them. Uh, if someone doesn't know Jesus, you can share the message of the gospel with them. Right? If, if you have money, uh, give generously to those in need. Uh, if someone needs a friend, be there for them. If someone needs discipleship, come alongside them. Right? I mean, this is just the, the basic general command, do others good. And, and, and this, of course, lies at the very heart of what we're called to as followers of Jesus. Uh, earlier in, in Galatians, back in chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, uh, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Of course, the, the whole essence of the, the law of God is to love our neighbors, ourselves, to love one another. And doing good is the substance and the outward expression of love. Right? Real love never stops with feelings or even words, but, but always abounds into action. As James tells us in chapter 2, verse 15, if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Uh, or similarly in 1 John, John says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Right? So, so let's strive to be people marked by doing others good in concrete, tangible, specific ways. Um, I think of uh, the account of Dorcas, uh, whom Peter raised to life. And it's so significant that, that Luke, you know, he's describing, okay, who is Dorcas? What is she like? He says, she was full of good works and acts of charity. And I just thought to myself, you know, oh, that that could be said of me. You know, that, that on that last day, uh, on your tombstone, on whatever, you know, what kind of legacy would you leave in this world? You know, so-and-so, they were full of good works and acts of love and charity. I mean, it would be nice to be, you know, a gifted in some way. You know, whether you're, you're really wise and people come to you for counsel. Well, you know, if you're a gifted theologian, you could be a great preacher, you could be a courageous evangelist, um, you know, you could be this great Christian leader or writer or whatever. But all of those things, I mean, are secondary 
to excelling in love. All right, 1 Corinthians 13. Right? Love is what excels them all. That is the thing we should strive for above everything else. And so to the degree that you're here and, and your life is already marked by little but specific, clear, tangible ways of doing others good, be encouraged. Uh, be encouraged to persevere in that. You know, that is great. That is meaningful. That, that matters in the eyes of God. Don't let that be diminished. Uh, but be encouraged to persevere and to continue in it. Um, and also, I, I think as we hear just this general command to do good, uh, I think we should be challenged to strive to do others good in both physical and spiritual ways. And I think many of us, you know, there's a tendency to kind of gravitate toward one or the other. You know, and, and, there, and there's some, some people that are just, you know, really eager to meet those physical needs, but the thought of like, you know, sitting down with another church member every week and just talking about the Bible, it seems really intimidating, you know, um, or, or the, the thought of sharing the gospel with someone, right? And, and of course, if we're going to do others good, those physical things are important, but, but it's the truth about Jesus that is going to matter for eternity. Right? And so we need to be spurred on in that way. Uh, but I think those people tend to get a lot of you know, attention in preaching. But there's others of us, you know, and maybe if, I think I would tend to fall into this category where we sort of gravitate toward evangelism, discipleship. But if we're not careful, and, and I think I've erred in this in the past, of almost being too spiritual to meet those practical needs. You know, too spiritual to, to think about just the everyday, simple acts of charity and good works. And one of the things I think we should be challenged by in this verse is, is the importance of that. Um, because our message and what we say is going to mean so much more when simultaneously we are letting our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Right? When we do both together, that will get others' attention. Uh, like Jesus himself, even if they don't like the message, there will be something attractive and hard to object to uh, that brings glory to God. So, we've considered what this verse is calling us to do. Well, let's consider next why. Why is it that we should do good? Uh, what, what is our motivation? Uh, and, and, and first of all, I, I just want to briefly frame, you know, we've jumped in right at the very end of Galatians, like the, one of the last things Paul says, and, and just very briefly, you know, kind of refresh your memory or give you a little bit of background about the, the book itself. Um, so Galatians is being written uh, by Paul to uh, Christians in Galatia. These are Christians who largely were Gentiles before, but they heard the gospel through Paul and came to faith in him, or in, in Jesus. And, and now um, there are these Judaizing false teachers that have come in. So these are Jewish background, they call themselves Christians, uh, and, and they have come in and they're telling the Galatians, look, you believe in Jesus, that's good, but that's insufficient. 
Christ alone is not enough. You need to believe in Jesus and you need to get circumcised. And you need to start keeping other aspects of the uh, Jewish law. And Paul has heard about this. And Paul is beside himself in uh, concern for the Galatians. Because the Galatians are being attracted. The, The Galatians think, well, you know, we used to worship in these idol temples, and then we heard about Jesus, and now we're hearing about the, the real way to serve God. You know, we need to get circumcised, we need to, you know, eat a certain way, dress a certain way, and they think we're progressing in holiness. And Paul says, no, you are turning your back on Jesus. You are deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ. Don't listen to them. And, and so the, the way the whole book breaks down is Paul is, is, is trying to uh, respond to what the Judaizers are saying. And, and a good way to remember that, chapters 1 and 2, uh, Paul's defending his apostleship. So, so Paul is saying, um, you know, the, the false teacher is trying to discredit Paul, say, well, listen to us, Paul's not a true apostle, the, you know, the Jerusalem apostles are teaching something different. And Paul says, no, 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 no. I am an apostle of Jesus, and therefore I'm telling you what Jesus himself told me, and if you reject me and my teaching, you're rejecting Christ himself. And then in chapters 3 and 4, Paul focuses on his theology, right? And so the Judaizers are trying to say, well, Paul, you know, he's mistaken because, look, the the Bible says be circumcised. The Bible says eat a certain way. These laws came from God. You need to keep them. And Paul goes back and says, no, they're misreading the Scriptures. Because actually Abraham was saved, was justified by faith. And God made the promise to Abraham before God ever gave the law. And so the law came to serve a temporary function, but it never came as a means of salvation. The law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. And now that Christ has come, we're no longer under a tutor. And then, in, verse, in chapters 5 and 6, so Paul, he defends his apostleship, he defends his theology, and then chapters 5 and 6, Paul applies that theology. Because you can imagine what the false teachers, the Judaizers are saying. They say, well, Paul says you're just saved by grace alone. You're, you're justified by faith alone, and what that means is that you can just believe in Jesus, and then you can live any way you want, and you can still go to heaven. And Paul's gospel leads people that feel the license to sin. So Paul's gospel doesn't result in righteousness. And Paul argues that actually the reverse is true. That actually, the more you try to press the law on people, the more they will be enslaved to sin the more sin will be provoked from within, the more they will be envious and provoking and competing with each other, and the more the works of the flesh will be evident. And on the other hand, the more that you understand the grace of the gospel and you experience life in the Spirit, then you will live a righteous life. And Paul's point is very clear that my gospel, it's not only that you are justified by faith, but then it results in a transformed life. And and the true gospel really does bring glory to God by transforming people. 
And so that's in the background as Paul now comes here to the end of Galatians chapter 6, right? He wants to make the point that, you know, the, tr- the true gospel, it produces righteousness, righteous living that brings glory to God. And so with that context, uh, we, we come to our verse, which begins with the, the little term, so then, or therefore, right? Which refers back to the immediate context of verses 7 through 9. And so, just prior to our verse, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Okay, so, so Paul here, he's addressing the deceived person who thinks, I can sow to my flesh. I can indulge the flesh and I'll reap eternal life. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Because the gospel does not lead to sowing to your flesh and then reaping The the gospel leads to sowing to the Spirit and then reaping eternal life. You say, okay, hold on. Like, how does this all fit together? And and let me just introduce one more piece of the puzzle that, that I think will start to help this fit. Throughout the book of Galatians, Paul, in his mind, he seems to have this this way of talking where there are two realms in which you can live. One is the realm of the flesh. And those who are in the realm of the flesh are described as living under the law, in the flesh, and by works. So law, flesh, works. They always go together. And then there's this realm of the Spirit. And the realm of the Spirit are those who are living under God's grace, in the Spirit, and by faith. So grace, faith, and Spirit go together. And and what you see is the realm of the flesh, you know, law, works, and flesh, always leads to slavery and sin and death. And then this realm of the Spirit, those who are living under the grace of God by faith in Christ in the Spirit, that always leads to freedom, righteousness, and life. And, and, I, and I think that, that when you start seeing it that way, it, it starts clicking what Paul is really saying here. So, so when he talks about sowing to the Spirit, he doesn't just mean Sowing to the Spirit is not just the same thing as doing good. It includes the question of why. Why? Because if you're trying to do, you know, the, the Judaizers were talking about, well, you've got to keep the law, and, and that included trying to do good things. But it, Paul's point is if you're trying to do good things to earn your standing before God, you're sowing to the flesh. 
You've come under the law, and that will bring about condemnation and judgment and slavery, and you will get so wrapped up in sin, that leads to death. But Paul is saying, no, 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 sowing to the Spirit, that means standing firm by faith in Christ in the grace of God, knowing that you are accepted already, not because of you're good enough, but because Jesus is good enough, because Jesus has loved you and has come as your substitute to bear the curse that was upon you for your disobedience. He bore it on the cross. And now, through faith in Christ, you are forgiven. And you are free. And that's why when you, we come to this last section of Galatians, it begins with this glorious pronouncement, for freedom Christ has set us free. Freedom. So, so we say, okay, so why then should we do good. We should do good because, number one, Christ has freed us from the penalty of sin, right? He has given us this freedom from condemnation that motivates us to want to do good because we love Him, because we want Him to be glorified. Also, He's given us a freedom that empowers us. Because the kind of freedom he gives is also comes with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God is in us to empower us, to enable us to, to live a new life, right? If, that's why we have the flesh and the Spirit at war within. But if we turn from the flesh, right, and we fight against it and we walk in the Spirit, we'll bear the fruit of the Spirit. Right? That's the promise. It's not that we work hard enough that it just comes up. It's, it's God working in us to, to bring about the fruit of the Spirit. And then finally, this freedom is a freedom that reorients our life. Um, and I think Paul gets at this in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. And just think for a minute. If you come to the law, and you approach the law, and your thought is, how do I do enough good things to assure myself that God is going to accept me? As you think about the law, you're mainly thinking about you. Every day, you're concentrated on how am I measuring up? And how am I comparing to these other people? And the more you're really thinking about the comparison game and yourself, the less you're even thinking about the, the one thing that the whole law is summed up in, which is love your neighbor. Right? I mean, the whole point of the law is to love others. And if you come to the law trying to think about how can I, you know, assure myself that God is really going to accept me, you're not going to be thinking about other people. But when you, come to the, when you come to Christ and you realize, I'm forgiven, and I'm accepted, and I am free, well, now we're free to concentrate on loving other people because I don't have to worry about trying to earn my own salvation. Yeah, you know, I, I heard an illustration one time this I was talking about this physics class. I think it was like a really, you know, in 
graduate school or something, this physics class, and, and the, um, the professor comes in, there's only about five students. And these students all loved physics, but they were really nervous because they're thinking, like, this might be curved, like, we're not all going to get A's, you know, and so they really want to learn it, but they're worried about the grade. And the professor comes in, and he says on day one, he says, you know what, you all have an A. Now let's learn the material. Because he didn't want the grade to distract them from learning the material, right? And in a similar way, we, it, it, the fear of, am I going to be good enough, is not, should not distract us from the fact, no, we're forgiven. We have the A because of Christ. And now we're free to give ourselves in love for one another. So, that's why we should do good. Uh, well, let's, let's turn now to uh, the, the third question. So we've seen what, why, and now when. So when or on what occasion should we do good? Um, so Paul says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. So he, he gives this little qualifier, as we have opportunity. Um, and there are, there, there are three aspects of this I, I, I want to tease out. Um, so, so the first is this, as we have opportunity means um, when needs arise, be ready to act. Um, you know, we, we might think of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? I mean, obviously, this, here's a case of this man that's traveling down the road. He's robbed. He's beaten. He's laid on the side of the road. And three different men walk by with the opportunity to help. And the priest and the Levite, for whatever reason, maybe they thought they were too busy. Maybe they thought they had more important things to do. They don't take the opportunity. But the third man, the Samaritan, is the one who takes the opportunity to do good. Uh, and, and, and in a similar way, um, in our lives, right, there will be these sovereignly ordained opportunities, needs that come up. Right? And Paul is saying, as we have opportunity, do good. Right? Don't be so busy or so self-absorbed that you just blow right past and miss it. Um, I, I was uh, thoughtful of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, right, where Paul says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is this picture of like walking through life, you know, a path that God has already prepared. You know, and, and there are good works that God has prepared for us to walk in and to fulfill. Uh, so so let's, let's be mindful of that. Let's be ready for that. Um, so, so be ready to meet particular needs as they come before you. But secondly, this, this phrase, as we have opportunity, uh, I, I think it also has reference to the, the idea of this present life. You know, Paul has just been talking about sowing, right? Laboring and doing good, knowing that as you sow to the Spirit, you know, 
trust, standing firm in the grace of God, you know, faithfully trusting in Christ, that then there's this hope of reaping eternal life. This confidence, the day is coming when I will reap. And so in another sense, this whole life is, is this opportunity to do good in the here and now, right? And, and that transcends just random acts of kindness, right? It extends to thinking proactively about how you can invest the particular gifts and resources that God has given you. Uh, we could think for a moment about the, the parable of the talents, Right? And how Jesus said, look, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a man who you know, gives these different amounts of money to the, the different servants, and then he goes off on a journey, and those servants are to invest them. And the, and the one that buried him in the ground is rebuked, because that was meant to be invested. And in a similar way, we have opportunities in our life by virtue of the fact that God has given us time and money and minds, and bodies, and, and we can think proactively, how do I invest this in planned ways, right? There's nothing more spiritual about being spontaneous versus planning. Uh, and, and so think about how you can intentionally do others good um, in more strategic, planned ways. You know, maybe, maybe it's seeking out a friend at church and saying, hey, you know, let's, let's meet up for breakfast once a week or once a month. And, and just share how we're doing spiritually um, and, and encourage one another in our walk with the Lord. Um, you know, maybe it's, it's seeking out a way you can be more invested in the cause of missions um, or, you know, it's volunteering in the community or, you know, doing something here at, at the church. Like, hey, I'm a, I'll take care of the, the grass cutting or, you know, just practical needs like that. And then a, a third thing I want us to think about this, as you have opportunity, um, recognize that our responsibility in doing good is limited. It doesn't say, therefore, do good to everyone, period. It says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. And that is really important to Think about it. Because, you know, maybe you've experienced this before where, you know, we hear about orphans in Africa and sex trafficking in Asia and the homeless shelter down the street and the need for mission support and the local food drive and this and that and that. And, you know, the need of the world is just completely overwhelming. It can be completely paralyzing. And in the midst of that, it is really important that we remember that you and I are not the saviors of the world, but Jesus is, right? We, we are commanded not to go out and try to meet every conceivable need, but rather to be faithful, to love others enough to be willing that as we have opportunity, we do them good, right? And, and, and this is where, at the end of the day, you know, we have to pray. We need wisdom and discernment, and we need to rest in the sufficiency of God. Right? His will is perfect. You know, his, his law should not be received as this crushing burden. I mean, remember how Paul started this section. It's for freedom that Christ set us free. You know, this command to do others good is not this crushing weight, 
that should just weigh you down every day as all you think about is how you have failed. Rather, I mean, this should spur us on. This should spur us up to say, you know, God has called me to be thoughtful of others, to be eager and ready to meet needs, to do others good as he has given me the ability. So I want to walk in that. I want to be faithful to that. Finally, uh, let's consider the who of this verse. Uh, So who or to whom should we do good? Well, Paul says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So first of all, Paul says, do good to everyone. Right? That would be friends, families, co-workers, relatives, even enemies. And if there's anything here that should, I think, stand out as uniquely Christian, it's the idea that we should do good even to those who dislike us, even to those who are our enemies. Because we have the ultimate example of that in Jesus Christ, who gave his very life, even for us, when we were his enemies. Uh, And therefore, commands us to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, to do good to those who hate us, and pray for those who spitefully use us and persecute us. But then secondly, Paul says we are to do good especially to those who are of the household of faith. And again, you know, Paul is recognizing here that we can't meet every single need. He says, do good to everyone, but especially to those who are the household of faith, because you have to prioritize. You can't meet every need that ever comes before you. Um, we, we have to use discernment to decide what we, God would have us do and what he would have us not do. And here, Paul emphasizes that it's especially God's will that we be eager to meet the needs of other Christians. And why is that? Well, he says, he even describes other Christians as the household of faith, the the family of faith. And by loving one another especially, uh, we bear witness to the reality that God has united us in Christ. When when the church loves one another, um, Ephesians tells us even the, the principalities and powers are in awe of the wisdom of God. Uh, And Jesus said, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So especially think about how can you do good for others right here in this body? How can you prioritize that? Because then the onlooking world will have a clearer picture of who God is and what God has done in joining you together as a family of faith in Christ. So, as we uh, conclude, we've considered what um, it means to do good, we've considered why we're to do it, when and to whom. Uh, In in conclusion, you know, it's it's my prayer that that you would just be stirred up. You know, these are not new things. Uh, These are basic, simple things. Uh, but we need to be stirred up toward that. And I, and I hope for many of you that to the degree that you are doing these things, that you're encouraged, uh, that, that wind is put in your sail, not, not to 
grow weary in doing good, but, but to persevere knowing that you will reap the fruit of eternal life through the grace of God in Christ. Uh, and, and finally, I, I hope that as we reflect on this, that all of us are led to reflect more deeply on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you know, who has loved us, who has done us good in the greatest, most ultimate sense, uh, that when we were lost and dead in sin, He came as our substitute on the cross. And, and may a desire to bring Him glory uh, spur us on uh, to be more faithful. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, praise You for the love that You have for us. Uh, we praise You for the beauty of Your commandments and the goodness of them. God, we pray that You would help us to do others good, even as You have done us such unspeakable good in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.